Hello and welcome to Better Words. I'm Caitlin and I'm just a bookish babe. I'm Michelle and I blog at the Unfinished Bookshelf. You know, I just realized we've Mm. probably been doing this for the whole like, what are we up to now? Maybe seven months that we've been podcasting. I say I'm just a bookish babe because probably because in my head I'm like, haha, I'm a babe. (laughs) (laughs) And also it works. It works as like a title. I I can't say I'm an unfinished bookshelf. Aren't we all though? We could get so like philosophical <laughs> then. An unfinished bookshelf. Yeah, I do. It's funny when you don't even realize you're saying the same things. Yeah. Like, and then each time I'm like, oh, we should change it up. But I never know what else we can say or how to be spontaneous and cool. I know. The closest we've come to that is hitting record and then starting to laugh. Yeah. Or me singing or something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so. I just sent to Michelle before. Oh, we- P.S. Any noise in the background is Percy trying to get more food by playing with his um, bowl. food bowl. Yeah, because he thinks if he, like, pushes it around, it'll, like, magically get more food for him. Anyway, that's what that noise is, if you can hear that. <laughs> anyway. anyway. Okay, so I just told Michelle that I have a story to tell her on the air. Because <laughs> we're on so professional. Um because Michelle just told me that she went to the library today and borrowed a couple of books to, like, read at work, read in the bath, because they're not hers. I would like to I still value them and I'm not going to deliberately do anything to them. We never deliberately hurt books. But but I also don't mind cracking the spine on a library book and it's like a secret. It's it's like a little little part of me that's like, ooh, I can crack the spine. I would never do that on my books. Like it's a little rebellious. It's weird anyway. I'm I'm a little bit strange. That's right. I think we're all a little (laughs) bit strange. Um, No, I have a story. I was going to tell you um, on the weekend – just passed um it was ridiculously hot here in Rockhampton we uh, had oh what to get to on Sunday 41 nearly 40 yeah 40 I yeah. think it felt in the 40s yeah oh yeah like on the weather app when you're like oh it's 36 feels like 41 you know that kind of thing feels like hell yeah exactly um so <laughs> I on Sunday I went around to my parents house and I did a lot of washing and like hung it out and then was just like lying in the pool um, and then like getting out of the pool and reading. And then after like one or two of these rotations of like reading, you know, maybe 20 to 30 pages and then getting hot again and getting back in the pool, in the pool, um, because I felt like swimming, I could have just been sitting in the aircon upstairs, but you know, um, I decided to get out, um, one of those, like floaty sort of things that like you lie on. We've got one that's got like beanbag balls in it, you know? Yeah. So like previously I was just like sitting down in the full leg. Yeah. <laughs> so I got one of the floaty things out and hooked my legs over the edge of the pool and was floating in the pool reading, mm-hmm. i.e. holding my book above the water, except it wasn't my book. It was Untidy Towns, which I've borrowed from you. <laughs> Is it okay? Yes, it's okay. Oh, I was like waiting for the I was waiting for the part where you were like, and then I dropped it in the water. No, God, no, I would before be so- I even knew it was mine, I was just waiting for the bit where you were like, and then I dropped it in the water. Oh no, my god. No, it's totally fine. I can't not a single drop on it because Thank I would you. never do that to my books. Not a spine crack? I don't think so. Oh good. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. But um <laughs> Yeah, I'm almost finished it. I'm really, really enjoying it. It's I'm so almost great, finished isn't it? it. I read a lot of it on Saturday and Sunday, mm. but um, I just had to tell you that story. I remember getting out of the pool. <laughs> my heart's still beating. Yeah. <laughs> I got out of the pool, and I think my mum or my sister or something was like, Have you just been reading like in the pool? And I said, Yeah, I can't wait to tell Michelle. <laughs> It's okay. I know you'd buy me a replacement if you tried. Oh, I would. I definitely would have if I'd even splashed it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yes, I am. That's fun. I finished a lot of books last week, which is strange for me, but it was one of those things where you just have a lot of books that you're reading on the go and then you seem to finish them all. So I Mm. finished How to Stop Time by Matt Haig, which I I started when I was in Edinburgh. Yeah. and it's the sort of book you can read really slowly. And then a, f- a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago before Christmas, I started reading Every Woman by Jess Phillips, which I've probably mentioned in every single interview we've done since then, some of which haven't aired yet. But basically this book was amazing and it was my library lunchtime book. 
Um, and I started in the bath, but then I had to take it to work with me because I just couldn't stop reading it. Mm -hmm. And it was brilliant. Um, and then I also read The Upstairs Room by Kate Murray Brown, which was an unsolicited review copy. And I didn't really know anything about it. It was quite good. Um, kind of yeah, one of those things where like, if you had expectations from the blurb, again, why I don't read blurbs, your reaction to this book would probably be very different to mine, you know, because the blurb promises, yeah, the blurb promises something which is a lesser part of the storyline than what it is made out to be in the blurb. So you would probably be disappointed. Were you going into it thinking that that's what the story was going to be about? Oh, okay. Yeah. So moral of the story, don't read blurbs. And I enjoyed it because I didn't know, but I know had I gone into it expecting that, I would have felt disappointed. Oh, okay. That noise was the downstairs door thing being shut just in case you could hear that weird creaking (laughs) loud. It shakes the whole house. It's so real. It's it's so funny. We're not in the studio, anybody. We're just like regular people. But we are on the air. Yeah. (laughs) We're just um, regular chaps. Regular oh, my jokes. goodness. Um, so just before you came over tonight, uh, Jack and I were about to finish watching Marcella, mm-hmm. which is Marcella, Marcella, I think is how you say it. She I corrects, feel like whichever one it is. It's going to be the opposite. Yeah. Oh, she corrects someone in the show and now I can't remember. I think it's Marcella is how you say it. Um, and it's about this. It was in my um, what I'm watching for last week in our newsletter, mm-hmm. um, and it's this detective show. And she has these blackouts sometimes, and she doesn't know whether she killed someone. And it's all very. <gasps> but we're Ooh. about to. I think we're about to get to the killer reveal. But then there's still one episode or two episodes left. So like, what's going to happen? Anyway, we're really enjoying that, oh, and I'm cool. I'm loving season two of the crown and i'm trying to get everyone at work to catch up too so we can talk about it because you're still on season one my mom's still on season one and apparently most people at work are on season one except my boss is on like episode three or something and i just finished episode five so i was like come on i want to talk to people about it yes well actually that was something else i did on the weekend just watch a bit of the crown i did watch bits of the first or possibly third or possibly both episode of The Crown because my dad was watching it and uh, I was at my parents' so house. So, like, stuff you'd seen before? No, of before. season two. Oh, of season but two. But, like, I'm not really calling spoilers. It's all history. Not that I know anything No, that happens, that's true. But, like, but, like, for example, with Princess Margaret, I don't know anything that happens and I have really had to hold off the temptation of looking it up so that I can be surprised by the the drama yeah 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 I know well that's true actually the I was just gonna say something like we were talking to each other but I don't want to ruin it for anybody if they haven't watched the crown because technically I'm not even up to it so I'm not going to talk about it um but yeah okay so I've been reading Untidy Towns been watching Mm. season one of the crown I'm almost finished season one um, and I've also been watching the DC TV shows with my younger brother. And you know what else um, we did on the weekend? Have my first dinner party. Yeah. And you and your sister and your aunt and our friend Indy came over um, for dinner. Yes, Michelle made us a lovely dinner and a lovely dessert. I got my, dessert. my Betty Draper on and did like um, – actually, Betty wouldn't have even made the food. <laughs> Who am I kidding? She would have made Carl the maid do it. Um, so like I had like a cheese platter and then we had a vegetable curry, um, for dessert, for dinner, dinner. (laughs) it's, it's so bad. Like I, at the moment, and I don't know if it's because work's been so stressful lately or not stressful, but just a lot more brain power than usual. I cannot say words in the correct order yeah. like I can't we came home just before and we'd bought some stuff some food back from my dad's and I was like to Jack I'm like did you put the meat in the microwave and he's like the fridge and it's like yeah yeah like it's <laughs> it's just constant it's so silly anyway we had this vegetable curry which um we should link for people because it's so yummy and mm. if you are just doing it for yourself it's like the best meal prep because it can last like all week um and it is from meat free monday um to jamie oliver recipe it's so easy to make and then i made a little um 
It was meant to be apricot and pear, but I don't like apricot. So I substituted the apricot jam for raspberry. Also, that's what we had in the fridge. <laughs> raspberry and pear, um, upside down little tarts in you make it in a muffin tin so yeah, they're like they cute little cute. and if I'd had more time I probably would have given us two each but we just had one um and that was from Annabelle Crabbe's um home delivery cookbook as well um so yeah and we played Harry Potter Cluedo which was um what I got Caitlin for her 21st yes and, and it was oh hilarious. my goodness Caitlin and her family take Cluedo so seriously it's actually the first time I'd played it and wasn't that an introduction yeah <laughs> Um, I think we all know some families are like more into board games. Like, you know, well, this is one of those I things. I was an like- only child. So when you're a family of three, most board games are at least four people. I just didn't grow up with them. Yeah. But mm. like I've played more games with just my siblings. So like <laughs> clearly I'm just putting you as not a board game family. Um, my family is a huge board game family. Um, Cluedo is one of the top ones, especially between myself, my sister and my aunt who were, who were with us. And, oh man. Harry, I actually think I did pretty well for the first. You did. And I worked out your, like followed your system. Jack and Indy, however, were just like, nah, we're lost. We're not even yeah, following exactly. your system. They had no idea. My, I need to know who else gets, I don't even think I'm that intense at Cluedo. I'm trying to play effectively. It's a detective board game. I try to be t- the detective. Mm. But um, I will say this. my I have like a whole system with, you know, the, like the ticks and the crosses and like marking things as maybe to try and do the process of elimination to figure out what cards people have. And when we played the game, I think maybe I think you asked me a question, Michelle, and I said, oh, you know, I don't have any of those things. Like as you go around and ask for the cards, I didn't have any of the, you know, the suspect, the murder weapon or the location. And our friend Indy was like, "Mm -hmm." you know, like she nodded or something. And my sister was like, oh, my God, write that down. (laughs) (laughs) So much new information. It was so much fun though. Without our techniques, I don't know, the games of Cluedo just last four and a half hours for everybody else because we can play really quickly. And speaking of Cluedo, a question I want to ask listeners because I know that you haven't seen it but your aunt has. Who else, please tweet me, has watched the classic game, the classic game board like movie Clue, which is the movie of Cluedo. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Directed by Jonathan Lynn, starring Tim Curry. I analyzed it for grade 12 English. I love it. I wish I could find it and watch it somewhere that isn't YouTube. So I have a question please tell you. me if you've watched it. Yes. yes. And please tell me if you're a board game person. And yeah. I want to, uh, can we share with us your secret Cluedo strategies? Yeah. We would actually love that. If you tell me mine, I'll tell you yours, you know, whatever that saying is. If you tell me yours, yours, I'll tell you mine. That's it. I said it the wrong way around. Anyway, um, I have a quick question before we wrap up. Yes. What Tim Curry in the movie Clue? Yes. He plays one of the suspects, yes? Uh, It's been – I watched it in grade 12. That was like seven years ago. Um, Six. Seven, seven years ago. Um, I think he plays Butler. No. Oh. Uh, wait. I was like, let me, ca- let's quickly Google it because I'm thinking other quickly. characters, Colonel Mustard, Reverend Green and Professor Plum. Like. No, no, no. They have oh. like. Um, well, it's a disappointment. No, it's so, he's so good though. But. It's so funny. It's so good, honestly. Oh, it's available on iTunes. I'm going to download it after this. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh okay. It's the best. Oh, no, see, Mrs. White, Miss Scarlet, Mr. Green, Reverend Green. And Tim Curry's Wadsworth. Who is like a butler or something. Yeah, exactly. He's the the butler. Um, The great thing, though, is that the DVD has um, three, like has three different endings that it could possibly be. (gasps) <gasps> yeah oh that's so cool so the theatrical release included three possible endings with different theaters receiving one of three endings oh my god and then in the film's home video one which we watched at school on one of those like rainy day can't go outside and play things um they show all three and then they're like whoop back to and then they just show all three so i'm assuming that's what the itunes one is like too oh my god it's so it's so good oh remake 
Oh, um, apparently there is a remake in the works. works. That's exciting. (gasps) Anyway, but the original is so great because Tim Curry is just so funny. And he's like, he's like conducting the guests a little bit, you know, so it's, it's really good. I love Tim Curry. I think it's really cool that there's three different endings. Mm -hmm. It's a very good movie. That's pretty cool. Which I know after analysing it at grade 12 level. <laughs> wow. Okay. I know. Impressive. Um, okay. So that's it from us for now. Um, tweet us your board game rec- strategies, strategies and recommendations. recommendations um, and have you seen Clue? Um, also, no, not an also, an aside, after this, I'm going to go back and finish watching Marcella because I want to know who this killer is. Fair enough. Um, but stick around because you you guys are going to listen to a pretty cool chat we had with one of our favourite authors. She's, and from one of our favourite books of 2017. Yeah, this is, this is pretty awesome and um, you've had enough of us babbling. Stick around for the real winner of this episode. <laughs> Our guest this week is a Melbourne author who has published four young adult novels, one of which was among our favourite books of 2017. In the name of research, our guest has spent time underground with a clandestine group called the Cave Clan, interviewed notorious art thieves and trolled Tinder, which we've also done. (laughs) Not for research, though. No, (laughs) with mild success. (laughs) She has worked in recording studios, advertising and television, and her first young adult novel was shortlisted for several awards. Welcome to Better Words, Gabrielle Williams. Hi. (laughs) It's lovely to have you on. Yes, we're so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. That's so nice. What you were saying was so flattering. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no but it's true we both read my life as a hashtag and just we haven't stopped talking it. about it since yeah <laughs> we finished treating it oh that's so nice what did you love about it tell me um I think I just really got into it and it was really I don't know I just couldn't put it down which yeah. is actually strange for me I'm quite a slow reader mm. um and I just I don't know I just really relate to MC and the I struggles really, she had I really loved um some of the different things that were in there about how Australian the book was. Like Mm, I think it was towards the start of the book, like she gets home from school and has like Milo and pizza shapes or something. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is so good. (laughs) I think we had a conversation on Twitter about going down to the milk bar and I was saying it made me think of that ad with the uh, oh, low-fat, no-fat, no full-cream high-cap. <laughs> and it's just so, yeah, it felt very authentic and very yeah. Australian and I just loved MC and I really felt for her. Um, so for people who don't kind of know, My Life as a Hashtag is um, about this Melbourne teenager um it's a, a lot of friendship kind of issues in it and stuff, but she ends up doing something that goes viral and it's a real look at the complications and the impacts of that on her and her family and her friends and um, this kind of one stupid decision that she makes that's then suddenly, like, plastered all over the internet. Um, so, Gabrielle, tell us why you wanted to explore this. Um, yeah, I guess that, look, I didn't grow up with social media and I'm probably not a, I'm not a big social media user and it's not, not that I'm particularly against it or anything. I just, I just never really, it just doesn't enter into my head to use it. And I guess that I've, um, I read a book called So You've Been Publicly, uh, yeah, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. I don't know. On my shelf. Yep. I've got to yeah. get to read it, but I've heard very good things. Yeah, it's a really, really, really great book. And it, I just read that and it, it just made me think about how, you know, some people's lives are completely destroyed by, I mean, they're destroyed by, by doing something that it might be, you know, it might be a flippant something. And I just think that that is such an interesting aspect to life these days that, that, I mean, I guess it's almost like we've gone back to that sort of village thing of someone can put a foot wrong and everyone can know about it, which is sort of when I grew up, we were all really anonymous. We didn't really, apart from our group of friends, it wasn't like everyone knew who everyone was. But now it's much more that 
everyone knows who everyone is. And I just thought it was really interesting, the idea of if something did go terribly wrong. And it's happened not only in the John Ronson book, but it has happened in Australia. In Melbourne, there's been times when kids have done things, which, you know, they've done stupid things. And I mean, I've had three children and my kids do stupid things all the time. And it's fine. That's what you're supposed to do when you're a kid. But sometimes if they do something and it's stupid, then if you get slammed and you're getting everyone, like millions of people or thousands of people, I mean, I just wonder how teenagers can have that, you know, such a huge thing on their shoulders at such a young age. It's sort of, yeah, so I just really wanted to sort of look at that and how it would feel to be, to do something and not really think about the consequences and and the consequences are enormous. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think what I liked is that there was no hiding the fact that the thing MC does is wrong and, you know, isn't isn't a wise decision and obviously that there's another person involved and they must be feeling terrible things too. But um, it's interesting to turn it, turn it back and look at how that person who is essentially like the bad person in the situation, what, what they're going through as well. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I found that really interesting, not just yeah. to look at the victim or perceived victim of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I often find that, I mean, I find the concept of bullying really interesting. And the reason I think it's such an interesting, um, you know, situation is because it's such a grey, there's so many shades of grey. Mm. And unless, unless it's, you know, straight out bullying, which there's no shades of grey there, that's just like, yeah, okay, you're just being an idiot and being nasty. And that that's pretty clear cut. But I think that probably so many times in situations where someone is feeling bullied, uh, maybe the person who is bullying them doesn't realise or whatever. I mean, I'm not. I'm certainly not defending people who bully other people, but I just think that there. I like. I really like shades of grey. I think shades of grey are really interesting, um, yeah. and they're to examine. And so I sort of did like the idea of she's absolutely. There's no doubt about it that she's done the wrong thing. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And I really like. Having, I, I really like in sort of examining that sort of situation, and and I like my readers to actually go, oh, I'm kind of feeling I'm on their side, but they've done the wrong thing. I think that's a really interesting thing for a reader to experience as well. That kind of thing where you're going, oh, I hope that they're okay, and actually they they did the wrong thing. So that's sort of one of the things that I always like to do in my writing is to put things out there and and make people feel um, just to see that that everything isn't so clear-cut as you might sort of assume. Yeah, I think that really helps build empathy with readers too. Yeah, definitely. And it's an interesting thing. Like I know when I was reading this book, I, you know, even towards the start before anything went super wrong, I was thinking, this is not a good idea, you know, Mm -hmm. but we still loved MC. Like the main character is, you know, really interesting and you're right that is a really interesting thing to have the main character sort of be the one who does something wrong not the one who has something done wrong to them yeah I mean it's a lot easier to feel empathy for someone who is a victim I mean that's you know we're all that's human nature to feel a real kind of like heart tug when something bad you know happens to someone and you want to defend them and make sure they're okay but I and and often I think um you know people now it can be a lot more where um you know if someone does the wrong thing it seems very either people are completely 100% against them or they're 100% for them there's no kind of um you know or even with opinions about topics or politics or whatever everyone it feels to me a lot like especially in social media not in real life but in social media there's a lot more you're either one or ten you know what I mean yeah Yeah. definitely yeah and and so I just like yeah I just I guess I kind of like messing a little bit with my readers preconceptions and having it that they um yeah have to sort of think a bit about what they, yeah, you know, like thinking a bit more about where they've come from and what their their 
prejudices are and then challenging that. Yeah. Um, one thing with writing this book about sort of cyberbullying and social media um, that I guess has the potential to date depending on, you know, what happens in the future regarding social media and the internet. Did that affect how you wrote this book? Did it influence your writing? Uh, yeah. Well, we had a long conversation, my publisher and my editor and I, about how specific to be with the social media because exactly, you know, things are going to date and, you know, new things are going to come out and everyone's going to go, oh, my God, that was so 2017. But yeah. <laughs> we actually decided that, um, and my publisher was pretty strong on this, she just said, I want it to be, this is like a snapshot of the time. So don't try and uh, you know, let's show what actually is going on now because that's sort of interesting from a, even from a few years down later, even though it will date, but that dating is kind of the thing that will be quite interesting to see, you know, instead of trying, you know, so it is very, it's Australian, we, you know, there's the Australian-ness of it and there's the very much 2017-ness of it which was sort of that was a conscious decision to do that. And I actually had to do a lot of research because I'm not on Snapchat, uh, you know, I mean, and the, and the way that teenagers use social media is so different from the way that I would use it. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of, in a way, when Anna said, I really want it to be really now, I kind of was like, oh, that's going to be so much work for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm essentially a very lazy person, so I don't <laughs> have to do too much research. But it was really, really interesting doing the research because by talking to, like I sat down with a number of, um, you know, teenagers, some of them I thanked in the back of the book and some of them didn't actually want to be thanked because some of them told me things that they didn't want their parents to know they had um, about their social media and I had to sort of respect that. And one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting to me was the, this thing of the secret Tumblr diary, which I had never, you know, I mean, I know that kids have their, you know, um, Facebook page, which the parents are privy to, and then they've got their real one, which is, you know, they don't tell their parents about. Like I know about all of that, but the secret Tumblr diary I didn't really even think, or I kind of thought, oh, that might be like something that one person has done. But from the research that I did, it was, it's not as, it's not common, but it's definitely a lot more common than, than uh, I was sort of shocked at how many kids did say that they have got diaries online, which they just spill their guts about everything, which is, and that's where they find a community of people who are, um, you know, like-minded, you know, they might, if they're struggling with their sexuality or their bulimic or their, you know, whatever it is that their thing is, they can find like-minded people on the internet. So they use this as a space that they feel like it's a safe space to, but but they're not really, that, and that's MC, that's where MC becomes, she trips up because she sort of has gotten in her head that this secret Tumblr diary is completely anonymous and and then that's where, that's how it all, that's how she kind of like can do this terrible thing and think that she won't get caught because she just doesn't really, you know, she just thinks it'll never happen to me sort of thing, I guess. Yeah, actually something that's quite similar, similar read is the Manifesto of How to Be Interesting by Holly Bourne. And that's another thing where someone writes about, uh, their school online and they think it's fairly anonymous and then of course like you can see this coming eventually it's going to be revealed and um, the fallout from that and and that's really I think I think you're right that is a really interesting thing because like it's just not something that I ever would have considered because even even when Caitlin and I so we're in our early 20s even when we were teenagers Maybe me more so than Caitlin because I think Snapchat was around. Snapchat came out and was starting to get popular when I was in year 12. Mm -hmm. um, my younger brother is 15 and he'll, he never uses his Facebook profile. Um, he, I, when I have asked him about this and be like, how come you're never on Facebook? And I say like, how do you talk to your friends? Because I use Facebook Messenger religiously. Yeah. And Harry says to me, 
I just use Snapchat and Instagram DMs, like, duh, Caitlin. And I'm like, those things didn't exist when I was his age. And so I'm a few years older than Caitlin, and I don't think Snapchat was even a thing. If it was only out when you were in grade 12, I I would have been in university. I think it came out when I was, like, end of year 11. I'm, like, three years older than you. So... What? No. Oh, anyway. I think it's three. (laughs) You're 21. I'm turning 24. Two or three years older. We can't can't do maths. We're word people. We're not math people. Um, But when I was growing up, I didn't have a mobile phone until I was in grade 12. And even then it was like one of those... not the old, old Nokia, but it was a Nokia. Oh, it was still like a little Nokia. It was hard to connect to Facebook. Yeah. And like it had a color screen and stuff, but it wasn't a touch screen and mm-hmm. it wasn't a smartphone. Yeah. So I didn't get my first smartphone until university. And I was actually just thinking the other night when I was in bed scrolling through Instagram, I was like, wow, it's really lucky that I didn't have this when I was a teenager because I probably just would have like lost so much sleep and I just used to yes, go to bed. You do. Because when I wanted to go on Facebook, I had to go and log in and sit at the computer. Yeah, yeah. So I would go to bed and not have my phone there. Yeah. I had my first iPhone when I was in year 12 and for multiple reasons I was on it until about 1am every night and I have no idea I just, how I did that. Yeah, like I was in bed every night at like 9 o'clock and I still am, to be honest. <laughs> Still, sometimes Caitlin will come over to watch a movie and I'm like, okay, can, can you go now? Like, I've got to go to bed. And she's like, she's like, what? And I'm like, it's like nine o'clock. It's really late. <laughs> anyway, um, the question I was going to ask was, how do you think you would have coped had you had the technology that we have now when you were a teenager? Oh, my God. I would have been even worse a student than I was at the time. I was a terrible <laughs> student. I was really, really bad and I would spend all of my, uh, every afternoon, like I'd be at school and I'd talk to all of my friends during class and we'd pass notes to each other and all this stuff. And then uh, and then I'd get home from school and I'd get straight on the phone to all of my friends and we would just all talk until probably, I don't even know, 8.30, <laughs> stop for dinner <laughs> and then go to bed. But that was me, that like I never did any homework always on the phone or always catching up with people. But if I had social media, I would have just been, I mean, I totally would have been into it and I absolutely would have been, that would have been my focus completely. I completely understand why, you know, why it's so hard to put down because I would have been exactly the same. I'm I'm so happy that we didn't have social media when I was growing up. And also, I mean, we could do whatever we wanted at parties and apart from, you know, you'd get slammed by your friends if you did something wrong, but it wasn't like photos being put online and everyone seeing. I mean... That the whole school could see or your parents might see. Or, or a future employer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we were so much more... We were just so much freer because, you know, we were we all we were all kept in line by the group. The group, you know, I mean, I think oh. groups do keep each other in line. They go, "This is acceptable. That's not acceptable. You're going to be like ostracized for that for a little while, and then we'll let you back, and then someone else will be." I mean, I think that's how you do learn what is acceptable in a group, and I think that's kind of like that's fine. That's just how life works. But, um, yeah, to to have everything exposed to a, a wider circle, I think it must be really so much harder to come back from something if you do do something wrong. I think it must be so much harder to come back from it because so many people know if, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I just full, you know, respect for teens now because of what they have to negotiate. I mean, they're so smart with their social media and how they use it and I just think it would have been really hard for I just am wrapped not to have had it yay (laughs) yeah yeah actually I just want to go back to something when we were talking about this earlier but the more that we've been talking the more it's made me think uh of a comparison between like my life is a hashtag being a very like 2017 snapshot of now I think you can kind of compare it to something like puberty blues that is very much a snapshot of the time when it was created and it's it's still really relevant you can watch it now and and still have relevance but 
it's a it's a total snapshot of like the 70s it's fine I like watch that with my mum and she's like yeah this is like my teenage <laughs> years right here um and I think that that is really it's really interesting going forward that it will it will be part of something that people can look back on to understand this time better yeah yeah and that's exactly that's exactly what um Anna Anna's point was she said not that it's going to be a historical document or (laughs) but I mean the way that people learn about the past is often by looking at literature or movies from that time and if you're trying to kind of hedge your bets and be kind of like vague then it's really hard to get a good feel for what what it really was like and yeah I mean I and I sort of and I kind of like when Anna said I really want it to be of this time I kind of liked I liked the idea of it I kind of felt like it was a I felt like it was braver to write something that was going to date but being mm, dating yeah. of it is also the thing that makes it more um I don't know there's just something about that that I feel will make it live longer for a, a, I don't, I'm not probably explaining myself very well, but, you know, sometimes if something is very, very, very specific, it feels more universal. Yes, it does make sense. Well, no, I think Puberty Blues is the perfect example of that because it's a very specific, it's a very specific time and place. And Um, a very specific, you know, the surf culture and. Yeah. 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 And, And it's, it's a very like, it's, is it Cronulla that it's set in? Like it's very. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Or maybe like Sutherland, oh, but it's a very, you know, other people at the same time would have had very different experiences if they didn't grow up with that surfy culture, although there are elements, especially in the way that the boys treat the girls, yeah. that um, translate well. Like my mum grew up in the bush and even she was like, yep, this is exactly what it was like. <laughs> um, so to, to jump around again to what we were talking about just before um, and us all being thankful that social media wasn't as bad when we were growing up, um, how have you dealt with technology as a parent with your children? Yeah, um, as a parent, well, look, I was probably a pretty mean parent. I was always pretty strict. My parents were strict too. You know, we weren't allowed. I was on television. I was on the phone for hours because I wasn't allowed to watch much television. <laughs> So, and I think, I mean, I genuinely believe that it's really important to have time of boredom when you're, you know, I think boredom is really, really fertile area to sort of sit and think and daydream. So we were always very kind of like, you know, I mean, the kids would play games or be on computer, but it was really like, you've got 45 minutes and that would be it. And, of course, they just thought we were really annoying and we'd set the timer. And, I mean, 45 minutes goes really quickly when you're on social media. But it was just kind of like... And and interestingly, none of our kids, or probably our oldest girl, she's probably the most um, addicted to her phone. But the boys are really... I mean, you know, they'll check it and everything. But our youngest will, you know, he's like... he He's pretty kind of relaxed about it he'll leave the phone on the kitchen bench like he'll leave it I don't ask him to but he'll leave it on the kitchen bench while he's down in his part you know his room or whatever he's not constantly using it so and I think that's a good thing I think that you've got to there's got to be a sort of bit of self-discipline with those sort of things otherwise they will kind of consume I mean you can just like go down a rabbit hole and never and, and don't have any reason to come out of it because life is pretty interesting on social media, but you've got to make your own life interesting as well. It's really important to, yeah, so we we're, were pretty strict parents with our kids. And I said to Charlie, who's our youngest, I was, when I was writing the book and I said to him, so what sort of parent do you think you'll be when you're on social media? And we, we don't check their social media. We're not um, friends with them on social media so we don't have any of that sort of oversight we just kind of trust that they're you know it's their personal for me I think it's a personal place for them so we don't kind of go and hang out there but um, I have expectations that they won't do anything or write anything that's going to be negative for them 
Um, but I said to Charlie the other day, what would you do, you know, when you've got kids, what do you think you'll do? And he goes, oh, yeah, I'll be really, really strict with them, <laughs> monitoring them, and I'll be making sure that, you know, that they're not allowed on it too much. So, yeah, I mean, I think that kids growing up, I wrote this article for um, a paper for a blog, I think, and um, I was saying it's quite interesting that as parents, I'm I'm clueless about social media. It doesn't even matter that I've got an experience of it. I still don't know what it's like to grow up with social media. And really it's not, and even you girls haven't grown up with social media because it came in when you were in year 12. But, you know, this new generation of kids coming through, they're really going to be the first generation that are going to be able to parent with with real knowledge about how social media works, even though it'll change, but they'll understand, you know, they'll have been exposed to porn, you know, when they're 12 or whatever. You know, all those sort of those rites of passage that they've gone through will be relevant to their children, whereas they weren't relevant to me. I didn't get exposed to half those things because it just wasn't around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I know it is that sort of gap, I guess, like even how I said like my brother is six years younger than me and I didn't, he uses social media in a completely different way that I do. I can't imagine how it's going to keep changing. Yeah. Actually, it's really funny that you say that because my editor is about 30-something and she was saying to me, oh, now, so you know how MC pokes um, when she's sort of like is kind of going, what's going on? You know, I haven't heard from, you know, the guy who the whole blow up is about and blah 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 and I said to Elise are you sure she goes I'm telling you people poke on so on Facebook and I'm okay that sounds a bit weird all right okay so then I was talking to you know my research group of teens and I'd say what do you think about and they no no one pokes on social media that'd be just like no way and so I thought of that's where I kind of had her poking and then she's got post poke regret and then she unpoked you know all that sort of like or that sort of churning kind of anxiety about having done yeah. something that's just completely uncool. But that came about because Elise said, no, that's what they do. And it was quite funny that even she's very across social media, but, you know, teens use it in such a different way. I mean, yeah. it was really, I think I was really fortunate to write the book because I had the 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 great experience of interviewing these teens and asking them all about it, things that they would never tell their parents, but they sort of told me because of the book. So that was sort of like a really nice, interesting insight into what life really is like for, you know, the teenagers that I spoke to, of course. But yeah. yeah. I think that's really good that you did, you know, talked to different te- Did you talk to your kids about how they use social media or did you use like other kids? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I didn't. Oh, look, I spoke to our youngest a little bit, but and he he was really, really, he was really helpful from certain sort of perspectives with the story. You know, I said to him, you know, what what would what do you think someone would do that would make them go make, that would be interesting enough to go viral? Because I sort of felt like whatever it was that was going to go viral had to be kind of interesting, and it's really hard to sort of manufacture something that potentially could go viral and um so anyway he he was sort of good for bouncing ideas off with that but really the there were friends of mine's kids and then friends of their friends who I interviewed and spoke to about it not not my own kids because you know I'm their mum and they're not going to tell me anything (laughs) I guess that's fair enough (laughs) yeah Um, Which something we loved about the book was how authentic it felt. Um, And I know the other books that I've read of yours really um, felt the same. How do you go about writing that really authentic dialogue and um, the discussions that the teens have with themselves and stuff? Does that come back to your research group again? Um, I think that that actually comes from writing many, many, many drafts. So my process of writing is really quite slow and I will write a full draft. And what what happens is the more drafts that you write, the more that you get to know your characters. And really they're, I mean, I, that's really nice that you say that about their dialogue being so authentic. And I do have people say that to me a lot. And really 
the way that I've sort of, I think of it in my head is that it's like if you met someone at a party and, you know, you get on really well with them and that's really great. And then you meet them more and more and the more you meet them, the more of a deep friendship you have with them. And then the more of the deep friendship you have with them, the more that you can predict how they would act or you might know exactly how they talk. And it's the same thing when you write, you've got to, for me, I have to write multiple drafts in order to really get to know my characters well. And the dialogue changes so dramatically. I mean, each of my drafts, and my editor has said to me, each of your drafts is so different because <laughs> I go through it and I really, I'm really happy to chuck stuff and I, I get to know the characters. And it's only when I really, 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 they write, they talk the dialogue. I just transcribe it in the end. It's a kind of a strange process, but it really is them talking. It's their groups of friends talking because by the time I've done, I mean, for that book, I did 17 drafts. Wow. So drafts, you know these characters really well and and their jokes happen because they've told the jokes, not because I'm trying to put jokes in there or their their way that they react or their anger or their, their um, you know, politics all comes through only from knowing getting to know them through multiple drafts. I mean, I, I know there are writers who do one or two, you know, I know a writer and he does two drafts of each book and he produces a book every nine months. So, you know, you obviously can't do 17 drafts if you're going to bring a book out every nine months. But I don't, I, I don't know how you get to know your characters if you only have one session with them as such. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, you've done some pretty cool things in the name of research for your previous books and stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us like what the most exciting thing? I'm really interested in the art thieves because I loved the guy, the girl, the artist, and his ex as well. Oh, um, so yeah, tell us about what you've done to research your books. Okay, so um, with the guy, the girl, the artist, and his ex, that's based on a real crime, which I mean, mm. I'm sure you know, and. Um, so I, we know a few artists who were actually um, sort of in the group who were, you know, like um, so sort of there was rumours going around about these guys that we knew. So I sat down with, um, I would sit down with like the, the one that I knew the best so I sat down with him first and interviewed him and then he sort of said, you should speak to this guy and then that guy said, you should speak to that guy. And It was really, really, and sometimes I'd go to their studios and they'd show me about how they did paintings or, you know, the, my description of guy, um, uh, Luke's studio in that book is lifted completely from a studio that I went to visit where it was just this cool space with just all this stuff everywhere. And, um, yeah, but there were really interesting things that they told me, which, uh, like, for example, one of the things they said to me, which I couldn't use, um, which I sort of, I mean, you know, one of the things when you're writing a book is you do a whole lot of research and then most of it you're not going to use because otherwise it just feels like you're just, you know, showing your research. So you've got to be kind of like pull back on it. But um, one of the things that the guy said to me was how, um, I mean, these guys were trying to peddle the story that Patrick McKackie, who ran the gallery, actually organised the theft. And I'm going, oh, come on, as if why would, why would the guy who runs the gallery organise the theft? And they're going, makes sense because, you know, he, um, the Picasso, when it was purchased, it was really controversial. No one wanted it. They thought it was a waste of money. He was, you know, slammed in the newspapers. So he did it as this big PR stunt that went horribly wrong. And they kind of like told me a few things. But, of course, I couldn't use that as the thing in the book because Patrick McKackie is a real person and, you know, I would not have been able to produce the book if I had put some of their theories in there. But, I mean, I don't think that that's, I think they were just, and but then they did tell me other things like one of the guys <laughs> said to me, oh, yeah, there's the typewriter that the letter was written on in the basement and, you know, the E doesn't work or whatever letter it was that didn't work. And so many of that stuff I kind of couldn't use, but it was really interesting talking to them about it. And about that time, I mean, just the parties they had. And, yeah, so that was really good. But And then when I was doing um, 
research for the guy for the reluctant hallelujah um that was when i went into the drains of melbourne with these guys called the cave clan and oh my god it was so it was actually really interesting and scary because i thought you would just walk into the drains you know you've got the drains in parks or something and they've got the gates and i just kind of thought oh they're going to unlock the gate and we're just going to walk into the drain and and when I've gone far enough, I'm going to come back out. But what they actually did was we met at Campbell Station and they all used code names, so they never told me what their real name was. There was about 20 strangers, so I didn't know any of them. <laughs> and then um, they went to a random street. We walk along, we go to a random street in Campbell and they lifted the manhole cover off the road, out of the road, and then had to climb down and the the drain where we got in was about one and a half stories off the ground you know high and there's no no hand holds or anything like that it's making my hands sweat even talking about it <laughs> and you have to kind of like hold on to the just ho- put your hands flat against the pavement and then climb into the hole and just try and keep your grip on nothing and then you have to reach down into the hole to hold onto the hand grip that is, it's really, it's really, really hard to do. And um, it was very scary. And seeing as I'm scared of heights and scared of the dark and scared of uh, enclosed spaces, it was quite a challenge for me. But it was like a oh, oh my God. Oh my goodness. I feel nervous just hearing about Same. it. Oh. Oh. That would have been so interesting. And I was walking through the drains with these guys and there were 20 guys. It was me and two other girls, so 20 guys. And I must admit that I was walking through and going, okay, so actually no one knows where we are. I don't know one of these guys. I don't know any of them. And we're underground. Like you sort of go, we're so vulnerable. But, I mean, they were all gorgeous. They were so nice. They were They were really, really lovely guys. But... Yeah, you kind of go, God, that, this potentially could be a pretty dangerous situation to put yourself in. But my yeah. editor had said, you really need to go into the drains. You can't write about the drains unless you go in. So she did come with me as well, which was pretty, that was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah, but, um, yeah, and it was really, that was really great because I had assumed in one of my earlier drafts, I had written that, you know, the drains were really kind of like dirty and they were actually really clean not not scrubbed clean but they were like there wasn't trash or anything I guess because they get the water running through them all the time so they're actually like really clean spaces so yeah that was something that I wouldn't have known if I hadn't gone in there yeah (laughs) would you ever or have you ever kind of put something in a book just so you could research (laughs) it and do some cool stuff like that I want to put my well actually Funnily that you, funny that you asked that. My next book is set, half of it is set in Kyoto in Japan and, uh, ah. and in, in 1980. I can't obviously go to Kyoto in Japan in 1980, but, yeah, I do want to go and do a, a three-month stint in Kyoto next year or maybe yeah, not this year but next year. So I didn't cynically write it in Tokyo in Kyoto because I wanted to write the residency but for various reasons it kind of like came about that it was going to have half be set there so I went this is good <laughs> this is research to have to do yeah <laughs> so my first experience reading your books also was reading Beetle Meets Destiny which I must admit I only picked up because I love the Beatles <laughs> and I saw the front cover and I was like well I've got to read this um so yeah tell me a little bit about that book and and kind of where you got the inspiration from and I mean that was your first book and it did really really well for a debut well the idea for that so well I had completely different characters for that one you know like with my multiple drafts they had completely different names so the two lead characters were actually Roy and Amelia that's what their names were initially and then, but I wanted it to be a book, I really wanted it to be a book of enormous coincidences and superstitions and and almost like the thing about is, you know, is if you meet someone and you're meant to be together, but if you're with someone already, how do you sort of like, you know, work out what to do? 
And um, and then one day I was driving along. I, I'll never forget it. I was driving along, and when I was growing up, we used to we knew this guy called Dom Lennon, Dom, not John. And I remember driving, going, "Oh my God!" Like his parents missed out on such a fun opportunity to call him John. Like they should have called him John Lennon, or one of the kids should have been called John Lennon because that would be funny because it's you know like it's such a famous name. And then everyone would have called him Beetle. And then I went, "Oh my God." I'm going to change Roy's name to John Lennon and give him the nickname Beetle. And then he meets a girl and he wonders if it's meant to be and her surname is McCartney. So then I'm going, oh, my God, this is all. So this was just like simply driving along just idly, you know, thinking random thought about someone who I haven't (laughs) seen since I was like 20. (laughs) But um, it was just, yeah, so I just really, I wanted to do something where everyone kind of got all tangled up and I just really liked the idea of a, a book where it's just everyone gets kind of like all mixed up because I think that's what life is like. You know, you kind of like go along and you meet someone and then it turns out that they actually know this person here and that person there happens to be something or other, whatever, and I just really like Literally the story of my life with my partner. Like we met on Tinder, but it's amazing how many like coincidences. And then even down to like Caitlin in her marketing degree did a fun run thing for an assignment. Yeah, we had to put on the event for a public relations assignment and Jack attended it. But like obviously we we didn't know this, but I obviously went because it was Caitlin's event. And then um, one day we were parking at the university where it was held and Jack was like, oh, the only other time I parked down here is when I was here for this fun run. And I was like, wait, (laughs) when, when? And what? And he's like, yeah, it was this fun run for um, Anglicare, I think. And I was like, wait, my friend that Caitlin is- organized this. And he's like, yeah, I won it. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Like there were so many times we should have met and then we met on Tinder. Like it was just. Hysterical. Yeah. That is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> and see, I love stories like that. I, I love absolutely it. love stories like that because I think, you know, people might go, oh, that's ridiculous or that couldn't happen. You go, yeah, that happens all the time. It does. It's- it's crazy, isn't it? I know. Well, in the book, in um, My Life is a Hashtag, one of the stories that um, the girls tell is um, the story about um, being in the train station, seeing the girl on the train and thinking that looks like the sis- the, the neighbour and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. Do you remember that part in the book? And and they tell this story, um, a nook, not a nook. Um, sorry, I've just had a mental blank about who tells the story. Anyway, she tells a story about she's on the train and she sees her old neighbour and then it, it turns out that it's not her old neighbour but it looks like her old neighbour and then she's on the escalator going up and then on the escalator going opposite her is her old neighbour. Yeah. And that actually happened to me. And I just was going, <laughs> oh, my God, like how on earth? And I hadn't seen this girl for like years and I'm going, how on earth can that happen? I mean, that's just completely weird to me. I love all those things. I love all those things that life sort of like throws at you. It's kind of like life just gives you all these fun sort of experiences that you just have to look around and see all these weird connections and it's just really nice. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I know. All that stuff is so interesting and so funny and I love it when things like that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is is Beetle Meets Destiny out of print Yes, it is, sadly. And... It's so um, my my because um, I work at a bookshop a couple of days a week in Melbourne, and one of the other the other books so readings books is where I work, and um, the mm. children's book buyer sent me this email the other day and she goes, can you please get Alan and Unwin to get the rights for Beetle Meets Destiny and print it again because we just uh, she goes there's so many times that I would um, that we would sell that and. Sometimes, and I've got the rights back. I sort of think maybe I should just, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, please do. I read it because I read it at school and I read it from the school library and now I really, Aww. really want to. So, nice. so, yeah, I think so many people would yeah. enjoy it. It's It would be good to see it. Because I know, I think, um, is Kirsty Eager doing that with um, Raw Blue yes. and um, Saltwater Vampires and stuff? Yeah. and Kirsty yeah. and I were talking about it because she goes, she goes, you've got the rights back. And I think that she, well, then we were sort of like talking about whether to self-publish, you know, just and, 
Mm. But I don't know. It all sounds like a lot of work to me. I'm very lazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I must admit that's true because we mm. talked to Ellie Marnie when she bought out yeah. No Limits um, when we first oh, started this. And it, like, I mean, kudos to her. She did so life. much work. Yeah. But, yeah, it sounds like a lot yeah. of work um, involved. And, I mean, she did an amazing yeah. job. And it's wrapped up in, like, my library in Rocky. And I'm like, oh, look at that. But, yeah, and it must be amazing to know that you've done it all on your own. But, yeah, lots of work. All those sort of businessy things as well. It's not just printing it off and getting copies printed. It's, like, just distribution and getting it into schools and, you know, all it's just so much stuff that even just thinking about it just makes me go, oh, no, my God, that's, like, way too much work. (laughs) Yeah. I feel you there. I feel you. So much work. Um, So what projects are you working on at the moment? So the one that I'm working on now is the one where it's set. So it's completely crazy. It's a time slip soul swap novel. And a a 16-year-old girl from Kyoto in Japan and a 40-year-old housewife. So she's 1980 Kyoto, Japan, and a 40-year-old Melbourne housewife from 2020. And they swap souls. They don't know, like, they don't know that they've swapped souls. They just know that they've woken up in these other bodies. They have, and it's, um, yeah, it's kind of, like, really crazy. (laughs) And I'm Absolutely loving writing it. I really like writing. I like writing things that are just slightly, um, just slightly surreal. It always just kind of like, like with the guy, the girl, I really liked the whole element of La Llorona, you know, the myth of the weeping, the, you know, horse-headed woman. I, I just really like things that are just slightly heightened. I always like to slightly heighten things rather than just writing something which is a, a real kind of experience. It's just just makes it more interesting for me as a writer so yeah and there's all sorts of reasons why but basically my my theory of how it happens is that these two are actually soulmates and but of course they're born in different times and but but you sort of feel like if you are soulmates then your souls will always look out for each other they'll be friends to each other and the 16 year old girl is on a pretty bad path you know she's like doing a lot of stuff that's probably pretty negative for her pretty toxic but she sort of doesn't she doesn't know how to get herself back out of that sort of situation and the Melbourne housewife is in this like really unhappy marriage and she's sort of got lots of regrets so it's sort of a book of regrets from this woman from this old woman and mistakes from this young girl and both their souls like the young girl's soul sort of like reinvigorates the housewife so that she can kind of like sort out her stuff and the with the sort of benefit of hindsight or that kind of like the age of the 40 year old housewife helps the 16 year old girl to kind of sort of make some positive changes in her life but it's a comedy it's obviously not real life No, that sounds really cool. Actually, that really I'm really cool. um, in the process of making my partner watch Quantum Leap with me from the start. Have you no, ever watched that show? I don't even show? know about it. What is it? It is this show from the 80s. Um, I think it was like late 80s. And basically this doctor theorizes that he can travel through his own lifetime. Um, and it's like this. He has this theory, the string theory, that like if you – have a piece of string, the start and the end of it, like the start and the end of your life touch. And then if you ball the string up, the days of your life would like can touch each other. So you can like time travel within your own lifetime. But um, he doesn't go back as himself. He leaps into other people's bodies and they work out it's for a reason. He has to either stop them dying or fix this. He has to fix something that went wrong in their life and then he leaps oh to the next God. person. Similar. Yeah, it's so cool. But he's actually like this, um, like he's a, this physicist who's 
um, this doctor and has, you know, sorted it all out in the future. And he has this holographic um, guy called Al who comes from the future to like, and he's like, this is what you've got to do here and helps yeah. him out a little bit. But it's it's so good. And like, I mean, it, it's obviously it's dated because it's the 80s, but it actually, I think, dates extremely well because from, and this is why I want to watch it again, from memory, it actually deals with a lot of like race issues and class. And there is an, there is an episode where he leaps into the body of, um a boy with down syndrome and he has to like help him get a job and so it's like getting him accepted and so like it actually and there's a couple of times he leaps into bodies of women um and and one the first time he leaps into the body of a woman she's being like sexually harassed by her boss so from memory it actually stacks up and ages quite well but it's yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. Fun. that sounds really interesting I think that um, when you're writing something like that, the fun part of it is that you, in fact, have to work out in your own head, whether it works for everyone else, but you have to work out exactly how things, how it could happen. So the, the characters might not necessarily know, but you as the creator of the world have to know exactly how things happen. And it's like um, that David Leviathan book of um, One Day, Oh, and yeah, which is yeah. such an amazing book and the the way that um you know the soul kind of like goes into it. so that remark that quantum leap sounds sort of similar kind of thing but i met him when he yeah. was out here um a couple of years ago and i said to him so is do you know why why the soul does this and he goes yeah and in the last book then um it's going to be, you know, I guess the reader will sort of know more about what, how it can happen or why it happens and everything. So, yeah, it's always. But for it to be yeah. believable, it has to, yeah. And I guess it's like back to the future yeah. as well. Like the next, even if, even if, like you said, even if it doesn't, you don't get an explanation straight away, it has to yeah. be believable that this could yeah. somehow And happen. I think that is a, like for me, setting up, the world and how it can happen that these two souls actually can um, swap, can slip into each other's bodies over gener over um, decades and over continents and all that sort of stuff. I had to know really how how um, how it can happen. So, yeah, and that's sort of like really interesting to kind of like just work those little things out. It just sort of makes it more. I don't know. It's sort of like the science of it even though obviously it's not science, but it's kind of quite fun to work those things out. It's like a little project. Yeah. 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 Like solving the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if they want to follow you? Um, so I'm on Twitter as um, Gab underscore Williams and um, Instagram, Gab Williams writes at Instagram. And I think that's it. <laughs> I don't really go on them very often. Sometimes I do. I normally just use them more for a work thing just to say if something's, you know, if I'm signed or if a book's coming out or something like that. I really, yeah, I just sort of don't think of social media, as I said. So the irony, the great irony about my life as a hashtag <laughs> is that I write a book which is all about social media, but which was kind of fun. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone better go follow Gabrielle and you can follow us at Better Words Pod on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can check out our website, betterwordspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter there. Um, please subscribe, leave us a rating and review and we'll talk next time. I, guess. <laughs> I was about to say talk to you, but we don't really talk. Anyway, anyway um, we love you for listening. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.